I read a story about a guy named Julio Diaz. Julio Diaz is a 31-year-old social worker who lives in the Bronx, New York. And so he does what social workers do, kind of has a routine of life. And, and one of his routines is after work, takes the subway home, grabs a bite to eat, and then kind of gets ready for the next day. And the other evening, he was coming home, got off the subway, and he stepped onto the subway platform. His world was changed because there was a teenage boy there with a knife, he was a mugger, and was demanding his wallet from him. And Julio Diaz, this is actually him, Julio decided, you know, that it's really not worth being stabbed over a confrontation. So he reached out and handed this young kid his wallet. And as the kid started kind of running off, he yelled out after him something that changed, changed their lives, both of them. As the kid was running off, and he doesn't know why he said it, but he yelled out, he said, if you're going to be robbing people all night, you probably need to take my coat also because it's cold. And the kid stopped. And he turned around and, and they looked and he said, it's freezing out here. If you're going to be, you need a coat as well. You need more than just my wallet. And he said, I would, I'd love to take you to dinner though, if you'd be interested. And the young man, of course, it probably never happened in the mugger's life, right? You know, nobody's ever yelled kind things after him. He's heard four-letter words yelled at him. They go to Julio's favorite diner. And as they're sitting there eating, they're talking about life. The, the young man even notices the numbers of waiters and waitresses and even dishwashers that as they come past Julio, they know him because he goes there on a regular basis. They stop, say something, they wave, they smile. And the young man asks Julio, he goes, oh, do you own this place? And he goes, no, no, I'm a social worker. I just eat here regularly. He goes, well, how come, how come everybody smiles at you and how come everybody says hello and greets you? And he says to the young mother, he says, hasn't anyone ever told you to be kind to people, to be nice? And the kid said, well, yeah, but I've never seen anyone do it. And they continued dinner and as, talking about life and talking about the world. And as it came time to pay the, the check, Julio looked at him and said, I, I'm going to need my wallet back to pay for the meal. True story. The young man handed him his wallet, and he said, I know you need stuff. He gave the kid 20 bucks, and he said, let me ask you this. Would you be willing to give me your knife? And the kid passed the knife across the table, and they parted and went their different ways. What a great story. It almost makes you want to be mugged, right? I mean, like, somewhere back, you're like, yeah, that'd be so great. That's a Christmas story to tell the family about when we all get back together. Kindness Kindness has some power to it. It's amazing what happens when, when, when people who have a heart of kindness interact with other people. And we've been journeying through the book of Ruth. It's an Old Testament book. And uh, if you haven't been with us, you want to flip there because we're going to be there in a moment. You can use your uh, table of contents. We've been talking about loving better as we've looked at how Ruth has loved people. The last two weeks, we've been talking about her mother-in-law in particular, Naomi, how she's loved better. And we said the first week that love is measured by loyalty. We can tell how much we love by how loyal we are. And then last week we looked at the first part of Ruth chapter 2 and we saw that love is expressed. It's measured by loyalty, but it's expressed through service. And this morning and this week with your family, hopefully when you go home, we're going to talk about this, that love is rooted in kindness. Its foundation is found in just a kind-heartedness. Now, being kind is a verb. We, that's an action that we do. But kindness also kind of it describes an attitude that we have. Uh, so, some people are just naturally, their heart is, they're kind-hearted, and, and their heart is turned towards people. Other people aren't. Well, we're going to kind of unpack that here in a second and talk about what that means. But here's the truth. If, 
if you're not kind, it's really hard for love to be expressed because love is rooted in kindness. We've all known people who are angry, they're angry more than they're not. Maybe they're indifferent. And it's hard for us to, to feel like we're being loved better. Uh, Valentine's just passed, and, and hopefully this wasn't any of the men in the room, but you know, there's that, that old joke that, you know, it's not even angry, it's the indifferent husband that tells his wife, you know, listen, I, when we got married, I told you I loved you. If things change, I'll let you know. You know, that, that kind of indifference, that doesn't, that doesn't make a woman feel loved because it's not coming from kindness, it's coming from indifference. Love is rooted in kindness. You, We've seen it, though. I've told you some of my story. My biological father was, was angry all the time because alcoholism, all kinds of things. I knew that he loved me, even though he wasn't a kind person, but it was kind of hard to, to feel. You know, let me give it to you this way. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Throw this picture over here. This, this is called a Goliath bird eater. It's not a tarantula. It looks like a tarantula, but it's bigger. And you look at the size of that thing. It's called a Goliath bird eater because when they were first discovered, the first person that ever saw one, they found it and it was eating a hummingbird. And so <laughs> that's huge. It's like Goliath and it's eating a bird. Let's call that a Goliath bird eater. They don't normally eat birds. They eat insects, but they're huge. Now, here's the thing. They are absolutely harmless. People have them as pets. They, they, don't, they, they don't attack humans. They don't bite. But, but let's just say there, there is no way, no way, I'm ever holding one of those things, <laughs> ever. And it doesn't matter. You can, you can bring me the zoologist who can bring me, hey, here, you've got a much better chance of being struck by lightning than being hurt by a Goliath man-eater. You can bring me all of the research. You can bring me people who've had them before and go, hey, we have them as pets. They're totally harmless. You can tell me just about anything about this spider and there is no way I'm, I'm holding one. I mean, it would be like if somebody said, listen, um, we're going to take your kids away from you if you don't hold the spider. I'd, I'd consider it, you know? I mean, uh, okay, <laughs> college is expensive, you know? Um, I, I, my eyes and my brain betray me. I look at that thing and I go, there's, there's no way. Almost makes me want to cuss just looking at it because it's that scary looking. It's the same thing with, with love and kindness. If, you're, if your love isn't rooted in kindness, if you're not kind towards people, their eyes and their brain betray them. You can tell them that you love them, but if they don't sense kindness, if you don't have an attitude that's, that's kind, people go, I ju I'm just not sure. I, you can tell it to me, you can write it, you can explain it, but I don't feel it. Now, all of us, all of us have moments where Kindness eludes us, right? I mean, you haven't been kind every hour of the week last week. But some of us, are, we, kindness eludes us a lot more. Let's just put it that way. There's some of us that our attitude, if the people around you, if you go home this week and they don't really want to talk about this subject a whole lot, this may be you. Because they don't, they don't want to look at you and go, yeah, you probably struggle with an attitude of kindness. If your, your family members or your friends you know, are, are nervous about it, you, you might use that as a red flag to kind of process through some things. You probably already know, though. Some people, they're just kind-hearted. Some people have to work at it a little more. But if you are, on average, struggle with kindness, you've, you've got to determine why. 
You gotta figure out what that is. And we're not gonna be able to solve all of that this morning, but there might be some baggage. I mean, there might be some things that you've got going on that's from your past, from, from a mother or father, and, and you're still, you don't even realize the baggage you have, but it causes you to live your life from an attitude of something other than kindness. Maybe you don't know how to relate to your family because your family that you grew up in was not relational. And so now you're in a family and you're, you're trying to be a good dad. You're trying to be a good mom. You come here on a Sunday morning and you hear principles from God's word that can help you be a better mother, a better father as, as you follow Jesus. But it's difficult. And, and, and this dissonance between what you know you should do and kind of what you grew up with causes you to, to struggle. You got to unpack that. You got to figure out, okay, why is that? Is there something in my past? Some of us struggle with kindness because let's just be honest, you're really stressed. You've got financial pressure at home. You've got job pressure. There might be some health things going on that are putting pressure and, and it's causing this stress to, to push down on your shoulders and you come home or you come across your friends and you're not unintentionally mean or you're not, I'm sorry, you're not intentionally mean. You're unintention, unintentionally unkind. You just have so much going on. You come in and, and you're not acting or you're not living out of this motivation, this foundation of kindness. And it's causing you to struggle at loving better because you got these stresses. You got to figure out what those are. God didn't want you to live your life stressed to the max. Some of us, are, you might just be tired or burned out. You're not taking a Sabbath day during your week. You're not taking a vacation. Your company gives you two weeks vacation, but you don't take it because you don't think that the company could survive two weeks without you. And you're struggling because of it. And now it's affected your attitude. Your attitude is no longer kind and you can't figure out how to love better. We're going to look at a story in Ruth. We've talked about Ruth, loyalty, and we've talked about service. We're going to look at, at a new character that came into the story last week. It's a guy named Boaz. And we're going to see how, how Boaz loves better through being kind. Go to Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Now, I'll catch you up if you weren't here, give you the, the, the brief cliff notes. Ruth is a Moabite. She married a guy whose family had moved from Israel to Moab. When they moved there, the patriarch of the family, Elimelech, died and left the mother-in-law, Naomi, and her two sons, and their, da their daughter-in-laws or their, their wives. Both sons died. So you have Naomi, who's a Jew living in Moab, and her two daughter-in-laws who are not Jewish. They're, they're from Moab. I, that, that sounds like the most confusing way to describe just what happened. I should have done that better. But uh, read Ruth 1. It'll catch you up. <laughs> Naomi goes back to Israel and Ruth comes with her. And we saw the story that we saw that love is measured by loyalty through that. Then we find Ruth in the field of a guy named Boaz and she is, she is picking up table scraps basically to provide a living for her and her mother-in-law. And we saw how she expressed love through service. And she's in the field of a man named Boaz. And so we pick up the story right after Boaz has come back and he's, he's met Ruth and seen her and heard the story. Then verse eight says this, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, 
Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wing you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. She gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So again, go back to this culture. And I, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, but this culture, this, this widow, this young lady, she really doesn't have a whole lot of financial options. In the culture in which she lives, she's not gonna go down and get a job. She's not gonna start her own business. Neither is Naomi or mother-in-law. And so she's out in these fields picking up scraps and Boaz comes and we see this, we see this kind-hearted man enter the picture. And he teaches how to love better. Now, here's the, the thing that there are several things in the story that you pick up and you can read back through it with your kids this week and, you, and you'll see him again. One of the things that he says is he says, I want you, Ruth, I want you to go spend time. I want you to be around the other young ladies that work for me. Because here's what, here's what Boaz knows. And again, a little bit of a review. He knows that the men in the field, they're what you call blue collar. They're, they're, they're working guys. They may not have the best education. They're out sweating. They're out working hard. They've got good jobs, but they may not be the most refined gentlemen on the planet. And he knows that the language that they use, and he knows that the actions that these men take, that probably not becoming or, you know, or, or, or good for a young lady. And he also knows that Ruth being a foreigner, that she's going to be even a notch below anybody else that's out in the field is the way people treat them. And so Boaz says, you know what? I want you to go over here with my ladies. Here's the girl. And what they do is they're going to, they're going to bundle all the stuff we find and they're going to take it to the threshing floor. I want you to kind of stay around them because there's safety there. Now, this is free, but I think it's interesting. I want you to see this. If you have your Bible, go over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because we see Boaz as a kind man. We're going to kind of, See a little bit more. <laughs> but Boaz is also faithful. And that's a free part of the story. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is a part of God's law. It, 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 we're seeing what's happening here with Ruth and Boaz. Look in verse 19. This is more kind of history, putting the pieces of the Bible together for you. 24, 19 says, When you reap your harvest, this is the law. This isn't to Boaz. This is just the Israelites. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. In other words, if you drop something, you leave it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. 
Therefore, I command you to do this. So this is a part of God's law. We go back to Deuteronomy and we see kind of the culture of what's happening here these last two weeks. As they're harvesting the field, if something drops, the, the command of God was leave it behind because the poor are going to come and get the scraps. You weren't allowed to be that greedy. And so that's what's happening. Some of it's just happening naturally. They know that as they're, that as they're uh, getting the harvest and they're cutting the barley down, if something falls, Ruth and some other people are going to pick it up and it's theirs. Um, so that's, that's the situation that she's in. But Boaz, knowing that, does a few other things. That's kind of law. He's letting her do that. But he says to her, don't go to anyone else's fields. Stay here in mine. I'm going to protect you. Stay with the ladies. They're going to protect you even more. But then he does some crazy stuff. He says to Ruth, hey, at lunchtime, you come over and join me and all of my workers, and we're going to have some roasted grain, and we're going to have some wine. He feeds her. That was uncommon. And not only does he feed her, but he feeds her like that restaurant. I forgot what it's called. What's that restaurant? They like, you know, you order a meal. It's down like in the domain. They order one and they send you one home. Okay, yeah. They just got to, Maggiano's, if you're listening, I would like a cut of your uh, advertising fees. Um, This is what's happening. Not only does she eat, but he sends her, she eats till she's full and and she's got some extra to take home. So that's going back to Naomi. Boaz is just extending this kindness to her. Then when she's out in the field, all these other people, they, it's every man for himself. But Boaz says to her, when you get thirsty, go, the men have drawn water. You go over and get water like all of my other workers do. You don't want, I don't want you getting dehydrated. I'm going to take care of you. And then my favorite part of the story. As, as she goes back out, he looks at some of his guys and he goes, hey, drop a little extra. Right? That's what he says. He says, as you're going hard, hey, she's going to be coming behind you. You're going to accidentally drop some stuff. I mean, I want you to, oops, look, I dropped a whole bushel. You know, Ruth, you might get that. And and Boaz has purposefully made this happen. He's been intentionally kind. Protection. Come eat lunch with me. Take some home. Go to the water that my men have drawn. And you know what? Wink, wink, Ruth, you probably don't know, but you're going to go home loaded today. Because guys, I want you to drop some things behind. And out of this story, we learn how to love better. It's hard to understand that story outside of an attitude of kindness. It's hard to read all of that and even begin to pretend that that Boaz is an angry man. Whatever, come eat lunch with us. Hey, just drop some stuff for, you know what I mean? That doesn't make sense in this one because you get this this picture of his character. You, You can't even be indifferent because he's intentionally loving better. And what we've got to wrestle with this week, yeah, love is measured by loyalty. It's expressed through us serving people, but it's rooted in kindness. People have to feel that you're a kind-hearted person for them to understand that you're loving better. And for some of us, that's a no-brainer. You're getting like a free pass on a Sunday morning. You're like, I got this, check. I'm going to go back to last week and work on serving some more. But for some of us, we've got to do a heart check. We've got to do an attitude check and start unpacking this and going, am I kind-hearted? Do I have an attitude of kindness with my family, with my close friends, with the people that I work with? I'm going to give you some hand. I want you to be able to grip onto some things. I want you to do. So, so I'm going to give you three things that you can actually do. And the first one is this. I kind of alluded to it earlier, but, but something you just need to start. You've got to unpack your bags. 
We talked about that that's earlier on. It's kind of difficult sometimes if we've got stuff from our history. If you find that being kind is difficult for you, you have to determine why. And it's not enough to determine why. You've got to begin to unpack that baggage that you've brought with you. You've got to figure out, hey, this is why I respond in these circumstances and try to get healing. It's not just for you to love better. It's so that you'll live better. I mean, you don't want to walk around angry. You don't want to walk around different. God has created you to love people. So loving them better is the next step. You got to figure that out. Several years ago, I guess it's been about five or six, we went to uh, Cabo San Lucas family trip and had been, enjoyed Thanksgiving at the beach. We went this Thanksgiving also, but this story happened about six or seven years ago. And uh, as we're coming back through the airport uh, in Cabo, we're about to go check our bags. And we're standing there talking, and it's me and Amanda and our family, our kids, and my brother Brian and, and Chastity, his wife, and their kids, and my oldest brother, Brad. Now, if you've never met my oldest brother, you're missing out on a treat. He is, he's fun. Well, I wouldn't say that. And you'd know when you met him, because he's also loud. Um, and we're standing there, and we're talking in the airport, and, and as we're kind of going through the line, he mentions something about a, a robe. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, the robe that they have at the resort. He's like, man, it's awesome. It's like the most soft cushion. He's like, uh, I, I, I'm glad I, I brought that. Did y'all bring yours? And we're like, no. And he's like, why not? And we're like, well, because it says like in the room that if you take the robe, they charge you like $150 or something like that. And he's like, what? And we're like, Yeah. And like, you know, in any way, even if it didn't, that's, that's what we call theft in the United States. <laughs> and it's true in Mexico as well. And he's like, are you guys serious? Like, he's like, no, uh uh-uh. And we're like, listen, we know we do things to you that are mean all the time because we're making up from when we were young, you know. But, but we're saying, yeah, they're going to charge, my parents are paying for the trip. They're, they're going to charge my mom and dad 150 bucks for that robe. And he's like, you mean, and it's his birthday that day. You mean, it's like, yeah, you just got a robe for your birthday from mom and dad. That's what, that's what that means. And so he's like fretting. He's like, man, uh, get up to the line. And he's a pound and a half overweight in his bag. <laughs> and we're just standing there going, oh, gosh, this, is, this needs a video camera attached to this moment. He's like, oh, I don't know. He pulls out, opens his bag. i got to get rid of something. The only thing he can get rid of that's like not his is that robe. So his $150 robe got left behind at the Cabo San Lucas airport and he goes home with his birthday present that he doesn't even get. One of my favorite moments in my life. But for some of us, you're him. Your bags have stuff packed in it that really don't belong to you. It's stuff that that belongs to your parents and maybe some decisions they made as parenting that's not on you, it's on them. And I'm not trying to take the blame off it because you're living it. And so you've kind of owned it. But for some of us, our application of what we need to do when it comes to kindness is to unzip that bag and you go, you know what? Here's some stuff in here and this isn't mine. I didn't deserve this. I, I grew up this way. Maybe, maybe you grew up with, with a single parent and you're going, man, I've got some issues because of that. That's not yours. Get rid of it. And now that sounds really easy from the stage. Okay, we'll go home and I'll unpack. That's gonna take some time. That may take some counseling, and that makes us feel uncomfortable. We feel like we go to a counselor, we're admitting that we're broken. Well, guess what? You are, so am I. So, so own it. Go and go, I got to work through some of these things that I'm struggling with because 
If I don't learn to have an attitude of kindness and deal with my baggage, I'll never love better. Got to go home and maybe work through some of those things. And that's not an easy task. That's not a, hey, I did it and I'll be back next week. We hope you'll be back next week, but it's probably going to be something you're working on through the course of this year and maybe longer. But you got to unpack your bags. Here's the second thing. The second thing you can do um, is apologize at home when you blow it. My mentor told me this when I was growing up and, and never forgotten. I shared something with you last week, but he said this. He said, your Christianity, he told me this as a kid, your Christianity, your real Christianity, your real faith, is what's expressed at home. And I remember as a teenager going, no, nah, I don't like that. Uh, that's, a, that's a terrible idea, you know? And he said, your walk with Jesus in, in, in its rawest moments, your, your real walk with Jesus is defined by how you, how you are at home. And he said, because you can come to church and you can play the game for an hour or two during the week. And you can go to work and, and really kind of gut it up, maybe even for eight hours. He said, but when you go home, that's when your defenses come down. That's when you treat people differently. A, a lot of us treat people at work better than we treat our own family because we know our family's blood. We know they're in it, or we're hoping that they're in it till the end. We feel like, hey, if I'm going to get any grace or forgiveness, it's going to be from my spouse or it's going to be from my kids. My boss will fire me if I tell them what I really think. And so, I mean, we put on the show at work. We put on the show at church. When we go home, our real walk with Jesus begins to, to unfold for everybody. That's, that's scary, right? That's why this is just one simple thing. This won't change it. But if we start apologizing when we blow it at home, we'll start transforming our heart. When you snap at your kids, when you yell at your spouse, when you don't do the thing that you promised you would do, I'd take out the garbage and I didn't, and, and, and then you get called on it and you start making, well, I was doing this, and you start making excuses and defending yourself. If we would just start learning how to humble ourselves and apologize, and go, you know what, you're right. Hey, kids, I'm sorry. This is an excuse, but I, today was stressful. And I came home and I've been gruff with you guys. I took it out on you guys, and it's not your fault. I apologize. You didn't take out the trash and your wife's on you because she asked you to three times and you said yes. Instead of going, well, I was doing this, you just go, honey, you're, you're right. The kids don't even take three times to be told. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, I'll go, I'll go do it now. If we start to apologize when we blow it, we'll start transforming our home. We'll start, we'll start setting an attitude of kindness around everyone else. Because when we start being kind, and part of that's apologizing when we're not, you start getting grace inside your home. You gotta unpack your bags. You gotta apologize when you blow it. And here's the third thing. And I want you to look at Romans chapter two. This week, if you struggle with that, remember what God has done for you. If you're a believer, and some of you go, I mean, God, I'm, maybe you're, you're mad at God because God hasn't done everything you want him to do. I understand that. But think about what he has done. If you're a believer, he bought your eternity. That's, that's a pretty big debt. He's probably done some things in your life that have grown you spiritually. He's probably transformed you from the person you could have been into the person that you're becoming. And look at what Romans 2, 4 says. This is a great passage. We pick it up kind of in a discussion that Paul's having. So Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? He's talking about God. Are you not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. But Paul tells us this. He says, it's the kindness of God that brought us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that saved you. How how can we, if you are saved, if you have been born again, as Jesus termed it, if if you know that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has said, you're a part of my family, and when you pass from this life to the next, you'll spend eternity in my presence because my kindness led you to the repentance that gave you that. How can we not be kind to others? And what, has, what, what has anybody done to you that's more offensive than what you've done to God? And yet God's kindness persists. And so in those moments when you're going, man, I'm just done. I'm frustrated, I'm angry. Kindness is not going to come to me today. I'm not going to love better today. I'm gonna be good just to love, period. Maybe that's when you take a few moments and go to Romans 2. Maybe take a few moments just to pull into the driveway before you go home and just spend 30 seconds or 60 seconds reflecting on what God has already done to you. Spend a few moments, go, God, you might even ask him this. Spirit of God, remind me of how you've shown me kindness. And then you go into your home and you live out of that because you remember what God's done for you. Michelle Attaway was a young girl and she tells a story about when she moved in with her boyfriend, Jay. They really moved in together because they were young, 20s, upper teens, and just wanted to live a life of partying and we're in the drug culture and decided to move in together. They were basically living together already and they just called it what it was and moved in the same apartment. And Michelle tells a story. She, she never met Jay's parents, but she knew because Jay had told them that they were Christians, they were uh, you know, churchgoers and he always said it kind of condescending. So she was surprised that after she moved in with him and they found out that his parents called and invited him to dinner. And she really didn't want to go because she didn't want the Bible people judging her and telling her that they were living in sin and all of this. But he said, you know, we got to go. So they went. She said when she walked in the door, it, was, it, it became even more uncomfortable because her torn clothes and her tattoos and her multiple piercings really felt like, she felt like they clashed with this elegant table that had been set for dinner. She sat down with all of her insecurities and had one of the greatest dinners she'd ever had. The conversation was great. There was no conversation about them living together. There was no conversation about immorality. There was no conversation that led to judgmental feelings. It was just conversation about life and great food, which she hadn't had in the culture she'd been living. And then it got even weirder because the parents, after dinner, asked them if they wanted to stay around and play Scrabble. And she was like, we don't, we don't really play Scrabble. Um, that's not what, what we do. But they did. And she said they went back, and, and that wasn't the end of it. Jay's parents kept contacting them. They'd call They'd bring groceries by and, and knock on the door, just kind of say, hey, here's something, put these in the refrigerator. They'd send notes in the notes. They'd put passages of scripture in there. And Michelle said they'd take these notes and when all their friends were around doing their, their party and stuff, they'd actually read the letters out loud that had the verses in them and mock Jay's parents with all their friends and just laugh. And they continued to spiral downwards until they hit rock bottom. And she said, one night we hit bottom. We had no place else to go. And we picked up a phone and we called Jay's parents and we said, would you come? Would you come over? And Jay's family came, his mom and dad, and the pastor and some friends from church came. She said they walked in. She said we had posters all over the wall that would have made them uncomfortable. She said they walked through. They had to literally kick aside drug paraphernalia to come through our living room. She said they just prayed with us, counseled us, 
And she said, at that moment, I experienced the love of God for the first time and I gave my life to Jesus. But it didn't, didn't just get rainbows and butterflies. They started going to church with Jay's family. She said it was, it was just, it was weird. The people were great. She would go to, the, women would invite her to like their, their women's stuff they were doing. This is her word. She said, I, at my age, I just didn't understand what the excitement was about a glue gun and some flowers and things like that as they were doing their craft. She said, that wasn't me, but I just kept going back because they just loved me. She said, we were still struggling financially. And it seemed like every time that we were about, how are we going to pay this bill? Somebody would show up with a check from the church, for somebody in the church. Or they'd bring by a bag of groceries as the church started loving on them. And they kept going, they, they kept growing. And she said it got to a point a year or so in, as their life was being transformed, that she and Jay looked at each other and they both sensed that God was calling them to start loving teenagers that had been like them. And they got involved in their youth ministry and started serving their local church. That's not a crazy story. I mean, it's not like you go, I could never see that happen. That could happen right here. But it was because a mom and a dad decided to love better out of a heart of kindness. Their love was rooted in kindness. And they were going to be kind to their kids, whether they agreed or disagreed with them. And they were going to love, and love changes things. You're going to have a moment, a few minutes, to talk in your small groups about this concept of loving better and kindness, love being rooted in kindness. But here's what I'd love for you to process this week. And your kids will hear this on Wednesday, so you can process it. With it. You can start now, even ask them on Wednesday night or Thursday. How are you going to be kind this week? Who are you going to be kind to? If we're going to love God and love people, loving people means being rooted in kindness. What needs to change? What do you need to do? Let the Holy Spirit speak and then go do it. I'm going to pray for us. And when I'm done, bust out those apps and start talking. God, you have shown remarkable kindness to us. God, you led me to repentance you led me to the cross simply because your overwhelming kindness was a part of my life. God, we want to be kind. We want to love better. Our families, our friends, our co-workers, and our community. So God, this week, I just pray that you would speak individually to each person in this room about how to be rooted in kindness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.